Bing bong. I am back with another edition of the State of Bitcoin podcast where I'm joined by the one and only Ben Gagnon. He is the chief mining officer over at BitFarms, one of the largest public Bitcoin miners in the world. And I formatted this show a little bit different because he has such, such vast knowledge on overall Bitcoin mining industry and the ins and outs of his company. So I was extremely interested in what is going on, how miners are positioning themselves as the Bitcoin mining price is kind of floating around, you know, this 20K mark and the hash rate continues to climb. So Ben added some excellent, excellent insight and he's just a wealth of knowledge. If you need uh, to show anybody uh, who has any doubts about Bitcoin mining, I would definitely recommend this episode and anything else that Ben is on. So with that note, as always, ladies and gents, it is not financial advice. Everything said in this podcast is strictly the opinion of Ben and myself and should not be taken as financial advice. It's also, you know, not the opinion of BitFarms. It is just the opinion of Ben and it's strictly an opinion should not be taken for anything other than opinion and entertainment purposes only. Now, enough of this intro. Let's get into the show. Whoosh. Bing bong. I am live with another edition of the State of Bitcoin podcast. And I'd like to thank everybody listening on Fountain 2.0 apps, uh, or uh, Bit, uh, podcasting 2.0 apps, I apologize, uh, for those who have streamed me sats. Uh, but be, feel free to leave me a comment or a boost, and I will read them right before every show. But I got a very special guest in the waiting room here. I got Ben Gagnon, Chief Mining Officer of Bit, Bit Farms. Ben, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you, Brandon? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. So, um, you know, I've heard your Orange Pill story and how you kind of got to Bit Farms. Uh, but for those in the audience that haven't heard that before, why don't you get into that? Because I think it's a pretty crazy, pretty wild ride you had uh, to get where you're at. Yeah. Today. You want me to start from how I got into Bitcoin and uh, all the way up yeah. into this? Yeah, let's yeah, do it. it. It's been a long road for me. Um, I found out about Bitcoin in college when I was at Indiana University in the Kelly School of Business. Uh, I was studying economics and I found out about Bitcoin on an internet forum where people were using it to basically trade files and software and everything else. And uh, it seemed like a really cool thing, but uh, didn't make too much sense to me. I did have a friend of mine, though, who was mining Bitcoin on his uh, just his gaming PC back in the day, this 2010, back when price was, you know, way below a dollar. And he was just using it for beer money. And so he wanted to sell like $100 worth of Bitcoin for beer money, looking for a buyer. And my friend and I almost bought, you know, uh, some Bitcoin about 70 cents. And instead we were like, no, I think we're getting screwed here because this guy's going to go buy beer. And obviously we would also like to have some beer. Uh, so we went instead and bought, bought beer, watched uh, the price go up to a thousand bucks, you know, the next year, kicking ourselves for not, you know, making the investment and uh, having the opportunities to become millionaires while in college in one year on, on a hundred dollar investment. Uh, so I watched Bitcoin like a hawk ever since then. When it pulled back, I actually uh, tried buying my first Bitcoin miners from Butterfly Labs back in 2013. I sent them $5,000 for these small little, uh, I think they were 10 mega hash units at the time, maybe 10 giga hash. I, it's so long ago, I can't remember. Um, and they never sent me my miners. So I uh, got screwed there. 
went to a Bitcoin ATM the following year, bought my first Bitcoins. And then in 2015, uh, Ethereum had just came out. And I kind of thought I had missed the boat on Bitcoin. And, you know, here comes this, this new revolutionary cryptocurrency. And I said, I'm going to not miss the boat a second time. Uh, quit my job, started uh, mining Ethereum full time. And uh, I went into mainland China and set up a Ethereum mining uh, company, uh, mostly doing hosting for, for other other people who were trying to get into Ether at the time. And I was just able to really grow and scale that business. Um, that worked out really well for about two years. And then in 2017, during the bull run, um, yeah, I just had to deal with a lot of problems that uh, nobody should ever have to deal with uh, as a white guy trying to operate a business in China, uh, primarily driven by, by cryptocurrency going through the roof. So I had to get out of there. I had to sell off that whole thing. I uh, pivoted. I became a hardware manufacturer. We designed a immersion cooling technology system that we were selling to flare gas uh, companies, primarily in Alberta. And then in 2019, I got picked up by uh, the former CEO of Bitfarms, who uh, just kept speaking at the same conferences as me. And really, you know, we just connected um, and we saw a business opportunity there for for me to take what I was doing with. Uh, the company I had founded and, and bring it to a larger scale with BitFarms. So uh, I joined the company one month uh, before COVID launched and uh, kind of thrown into the fire uh, at a very, very interesting time in Bitcoin, you know, as it's pulling down to $3,800 and it's lows and um, things are just going crazy everywhere. But, uh, you know, we were a company that's made it through uh, multiple bear markets and corrections and uh, we made it through that $3,800 pullback and, you know, we're, we're making it through this $19,000, $20,000 Bitcoin price right now. Um, and yeah, it's just, just onwards and upwards from here. Yeah, for sure. But uh, I think the interesting part is, you know, even though you found Bitcoin and you saw the price ripping, it seems like you've always kind of had an affinity for mining, whether it was, you know, uh, originally when your buddy was doing it off of a laptop in college or, you know, starting your own company, uh, doing Ethereum mining. So what was it about, you know, this mining technology that kind of initially drew you to it? Did you always kind of have like some sort of like tech inclination with that? Um, and yeah, I guess just kind of go into that. Yeah, I think it's always made intuitive sense to me. I really like energy. Um, and I really like the economics behind behind energy and Bitcoin mining. And so, you know, as someone who doesn't view themselves as a, as a trader or a short-term player, uh, trying to invest in Bitcoin is a stressful thing if you're not DCAing. Uh, if you're trying to pick, hey, this is the optimal time to come in and, you know, this is the optimal time to sell out or it's, uh, it'll consume your entire life. And the vast majority of people, I think, who are into Bitcoin just don't have that skill set, don't have the temperament. Um, and, and really don't have the discipline that it probably takes in order to be a successful short-term trader. And so when it comes to Bitcoin mining, I view it as a, you know, one of the best ways to gain exposure to Bitcoin because this is a process that you, know, you, you build, you operate, and as long as you can you know, literally prove that you've done the work in building out the Bitcoin mine, you can get a cost advantage uh, over buying in at market and you can be generating that Bitcoin income every single day. And uh, that's something that has always kind of made intuitive sense to me and just seemed like the, uh, the smart way, to, the prudent way to kind of de-risk accumulating Bitcoin. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And uh, yeah, that's awesome that you've had an affinity for that. And I guess it's made you very successful, you know, where you're at today. 
Um, but I think it's a very interesting time uh, in Bitcoin mining right now because it seems like the overall hash rate just keeps kind of climbing. Uh, but the price is kind of like you alluded to a little bit earlier has been floating around the 20K mark or, you know, maybe a little above, maybe a little below. But, you know, what impact do you see of the hash rate kind of keep climbing and, uh, you know, the, the Bitcoin price kind of being stable more or less on the mining industry? You know, this is a really weird period in uh, in Bitcoin right now. It's uh, been a period of extreme stability over the last several months. Like after we pulled back to 20K, uh, Bitcoin has actually lost a lot of its volatility. Well, the world continues to kind of spiral out of control and seemingly, you know, markets are reacting in very rash and uh, somewhat unpredictable ways on a daily basis. Bitcoin has really held these levels quite strongly. Um, you know, and I think miners view that as as a bullish signal. Uh, the really, I think people get confused what mining is. You know, they think that when we're mining Bitcoin, we're we're analogous to gold miners who are just digging through dirt, or that that terrible paragraph that everybody writes about solving complex, you know, useless math problems over and over again to generate Bitcoin. And really, you know, what we're doing is we're securing the network and we're validating transactions. And it's just about uh, as important, if not more important, about preventing invalid transactions and preventing invalid changes to the code as it is, is processing valid transactions. Um, and really mining is just an incentive to provide that security. You look at how security grows all over the world. Cybersecurity is one of the best growing industries year after year. Um, there's a significant value to cybersecurity. There's a significant value associated with protecting wealth and storing value. Um, and Bitcoin mining is, is just probably the truest and, and purest form of that. So, you know, I, I think that you should continue to expect hash rate to to improve over time. And generally, I, I view that there's some natural pricing economics that come in right around the levels that we're at. Um, you know, I anticipate somewhere around um, six and a half, seven cents is kind of the floor for, for revenue per terahash for a lot of miners. Um, certainly not the majority of miners, but enough miners for it to impact the hash rate, uh, to pull back on difficulty and to see that market share and profitability to those miners who have positioned themselves on the lower end of the cost curve. And so that's what you know, is really important as a miner. Uh, you have no control over your revenue, right? Uh, it's one of the few businesses in the world that we have zero control over our revenue. We're gonna generate the amount of Bitcoin that difficulty dictates and we're, that Bitcoin is going to be worth the price that the market dictates. Um, but on the cost side, you can control everything. And if you position yourself in that low end of that cost curve, the, you know, the bottom 25 to 33% of, of low cost producers, you're good in almost any situation. Right? The rate that the market would have to pull back in order for you to become unprofitable and have to turn off is, is, is beyond any reasonable assumptions of what could happen on, on price. And so, you know, that's, that's really the key here is, is miners have a strong focus on cost. And um, well, there's a lot of people who have signed, you know, seven cents and eight cents hosting agreements, which are, are break even at best right now. Um, there's a lot of miners who have also, you know, started tapping into lower cost sources of power. There's miners like Bitfarms who have um, hydroelectricity, which is very, very immune to um, increases in uh, the underlying price because there's there's no fossil fuel chain. There's no real um, there's no real 
you know, cost components in hydroelectric that's really subject to inflation other than labor and some basic, you know, uh, repair parts. So if you're, if you're positioned on that low end of the cost curve, you're still looking to grow right now. Um, the cost of the hardware is the cheapest it's been in two years. Um, and even though the profitability is not really there, if you are anticipating that, you know, Bitcoin price is going to rebound sometime next year, it, it, you know, it does make sense to do some very strategic growth. You shouldn't be growing at any cost, um, but strategic growth makes a lot of sense. So I think marginal increases in the hash rate from here on out through the end of the year. I don't see any more 10% increases in hash rate without a massive increase in Bitcoin price. I don't think the market can sustain it. Um, and I, I think we're looking at one to 2% adjustments here and there, and probably positive and negative adjustments going back and forth if we stayed you know, around these levels of uh, USD per, per revenue on Terra hash basis. Yeah, so you kind of alluded to, you know, the, the cheaper prices of Bitcoin miners, but it seems like, you know, that might be kind of an after effect because of, you know, the, the big dip in, a, in the bear market. We've seen a lot of miners struggle that weren't really, I guess, you know, positioned very well for uh, this bear market. And I know you probably can't speak to other companies or everything, anything else, but we've seen, you know, companies like Moss and Argo, Argo sell off some of their equipment. So, you know, how did, uh, you know, BitFarms kind of prepare for something like this with, you know, obviously Bitcoin is extremely volatile and, you know, exactly like you said, you can't really predict the, uh, you know, your profit day to day. Uh, you can anticipate how much Bitcoin you can mine and everything like that, but you can't really predict, you know, the price is very difficult. So how did uh, you feel that, that, you know, BitFarms has kind of prepared, prepared themselves and have you guys prepared yourself for, you know, a potential, I guess, longer term bear market with a lot of, you know, the current geopolitical uncertainty. Yeah. And the way that we always view that, you know, it goes back to what I was just saying there about position ourselves as a low cost producer. And so uh, we've had this very, very strong principle on cost control of our operations. I think we're pretty well recognized as one of the better operators out there, at least at least amongst the public well-known miners. We're one of the better operators. We consistently put out good numbers, good production reports, um, solid figures there. And we've had a very strong uh, discipline there saying we're not going to sign contracts, uh, which are going to expose us to huge increases in our underlying power cost. That's what's you know been one of the driving factors behind us in our international expansions, as well as in our development of hydroelectricity resources. And so as a lot of our competitors have seen you know, not only a fall in Bitcoin price and increase in difficulty, but they've also seen underlying energy prices, uh, you know, double. Uh, for us, we've kept our energy costs flat. So we haven't been, you know, we haven't had that same exposure on the cost side because we had the forethought to say, hey, we're only going to pursue these growth objectives that, you know, are going to be well positioned in a bear market. Um, and so that's how we think about our, our operations and, and our mining strategy and our, our energy procurement. Um, and that's one of the best ways, I think, as a miner that you can you can protect yourself against the downside because the market hasn't evolved yet uh, to have so many uh, derivative products where you can lock in the value of your hash rate. Uh, Luxor has recently just announced a derivative products. A number of other groups are, are working on them, but it's, it's a really nascent market. There's not a lot of liquidity attached with it. Um, and the only other way that you can really lock in the value of your hash rate other than that is through, you know, cloud hosting or, or something along those lines. Um, but, you know, 
you just position yourself on that low end of the cost curve and, and you are going to be well positioned irregardless of what happens to the price because those people who get ahead of themselves and who value growth over cost uh, they'll be the first ones to go Yeah, exactly. And it seems like, you know, whether we like to admit it or not, as, as Bitcoiners, there's still kind of like the correlation with the overall market, uh, you know, whether it's the S&P 500 or some of these other, um, you know, uh, stock market indexes. And so I know I'm kind of hammering this price, uh, you know, worry here, but is there any, you know, potential worry that uh, even with like the next halving coming up where that difficulty kind of, you know, shoots up in the next couple of years, there is, seems like there is, you know, a decent amount of uncertainty. Um, so like for the overall, I guess, uh, not only just like industrial miners, but do you think that there might be somewhat of a worry that, you know, maybe home mining might be less accessible just simply because, you know, energy costs and everything else um, are seemingly kind of going up with all this, you know, geopolitical risk, energy crisis in Europe and, and all these other outside factors? Yeah, I, you know, for most places right now, I'd say home mining is, is probably not very profitable. Um, retail electricity prices have gone up pretty much across the globe. Uh, there are very few markets that haven't had much exposure to that. And with the pullback in Bitcoin price and the increase in difficulty, you know, there's not much margin there. Um, the good thing for home miners is that the hardware has never been cheaper uh, in the last two years. And so if you are looking to get into this, this is, you know, a reasonable time where the barriers to entry have been reduced dramatically. But in exchange for those reduced barriers on the capital side, you know, you have a much lower return. And so there is that risk reward balance that plays out here in the market uh, for home miners. Generally speaking, uh, you know, I personally just wouldn't recommend most home miners to be a home miner unless they just are really interested in doing it. Um, for the vast majority of people, if they're looking at it as an investment strategy, this is something that, you know, is a lot more overhead than you probably think. Um, if you want to just plug in one miner and use it kind of as a space heater or heat your garage, but, you know, that's one thing. But you'll end up doing a lot of work learning about it, troubleshooting it, uh, making sure that it's always working, doing the repairs and everything else, um, you know, relative to your income. It's, it's not worth it to most people. But if you love it, if you find it interesting to learn about this stuff, then you know it's never been cheaper to get started. So there's there's goods and bads with with every market condition, um, and I'd say most people are just they're just better off doing dollar cost average and not having to worry about the the risk on the underlying hardware and making sure that they have things optimized and making sure their power costs aren't going up and everything else. Um, and and if you do want that that exposure, you know that's what the public miners are trying to fill that void for. Uh, you know, how do you get access to industrial scale Bitcoin mining economics? And it's, it's through the public mining companies. The problem there is that uh, the valuations of, of public mining companies are all over the board. And it, it's almost impossible for, I think, a retail investor to take a look at this, this space, e even an institutional investor, take a look at the space and say, wait a minute, why is this company valued at X? And why is this company valued at three X? And why is this company valued at one quarter X, right? It doesn't, it doesn't seem to make sense to a lot of people. So I think that just shows how immature this, this market is, how new we still are. There still needs to be a lot of education uh, that happens around our space. Uh, but, you know, these markets 
are evolving. A couple of years ago, it would be crazy to think that we had something around 30 publicly traded Bitcoin miners across, you know, all these different stock exchanges across the world. Um, and if it wasn't for the pullback in Bitcoin prices, we'd probably be at 50, you know, um, at the end of this uh, bear market or correction, who knows how many will actually be running. Uh, it could be, you know, it could be 20 of us. It could be 15 of us. Um, but, you know, there are definitely companies who were who are focused on growth over cost. And I think those are the companies that will uh, be the first ones to go. And, and the companies like Bid Farms who have a strong focus on cost over growth, uh, I think are going to be the long lasting uh, winners here. Yeah, so you alluded to it a little bit that the market is kind of immature when it comes to evaluating Bitcoin miner, Bitcoin miners and Bitcoin mining stock price and things like that. So what do you think, I guess, is that that big educational gap between, you know, retail and institutional investors when it comes to evaluating some of these uh, miners? Is it, you know, maybe just not under understanding the full ins and outs of mining, not understanding Bitcoin? Um, you know, what, what do you think, I guess, is that knowledge gap there? You know, there's, I think there's a lot of knowledge gaps. Um, first, I think there's a big knowledge gap just on Bitcoin itself. And then I think there's an even bigger knowledge gap on Bitcoin mining. And the, the market seems to have really focused around one figure because it was, it was too complex of a subject, but they all wanted exposure to it. There was enough of an understanding to understand, hey, Bitcoin is this really interesting, highly, uh, potentially highly profitable asset that we can get exposure to. And Bitcoin mining is, is somehow a derivative of that. But they didn't really understand more than that. And so they latched on to one thing, and it was kind of end of 2022 year-end hash rate figures, right? And, and at the beginning of 2021, when people are looking for these exposures, they're saying, okay, well, who's going to be the biggest, right, at the end of this bear run? Who's going to be the biggest one? And that's all they focused on. They didn't focus on what it was going to cost to get there. They didn't focus on whether or not the companies had uh, a record of actually building and operating these facilities. They didn't take into account how they were going to pay for it through their financing strategies. They didn't take into account their energy efficiencies or, or anything else. Um, and these things all matter. And the reality is, is that, you know, at the beginning of 2021, it's really easy to sign a purchase agreement for a large amount of, of Bitcoin miners. But as you go into 2022 and those miners are being deployed, it's a much greater challenge to actually deploy, make operational and have very profitable and consistent operations. And so the market is starting to separate itself. I think there's a lot of players out there who, you know, promise big numbers and, and they fail to deliver. Um, and the market's starting to realize that these miners are not just about what they say they could be in the future. You know, really, we need to be focusing more on what these miners say and how they actually perform over time, just like you would with any other company, right? You wouldn't look at another company and say, okay, well, uh, this company started out from, you know, two months ago, they raised a million dollars, and now they're going to be the largest drinks manufacturer in the world by the end of next year. So let's put all your money into it, right? And there's like, no, let's have some more reasonable expectations of, of what this company is, is going to be able to achieve. Uh, I think that is being shaken out right now. I think, you know, when markets are going up, it's really easy to just throw money at an industry and try and get that exposure. But it's these pullbacks that make people reevaluate their investment strategies and positions and really shakes out the winners and the losers. Um, and, and the winners are going to be really well positioned going into the next bull run. 
Yeah, and you kind of, uh, you know, you spoke on energy costs and, you know, the efficiency of, you know, being able to mine Bitcoin. But there's been a lot of discussion in the past couple of years about, you know, how that energy is obtained. And I know you've written a couple of pieces about, you know, the whole ESG narrative and everything like that. Do you think that that FUD is kind of starting to pull back a little bit as, you know, more miners are kind of getting into capturing that flare gas and capturing some of this excess energy? Are you still seeing kind of some of these hurdles of, uh, you know, maybe people not fully understanding the, you know, energy and, and everything that's around it and kind of going at that ESG narrative? Yeah, I mean, in the same way that I think there's a big knowledge gap uh, on Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining, I think there's a really big knowledge gap on, on energy and electricity. Uh, I'd say nine out of 10 people cannot tell you the difference between energy and electricity. And they don't understand how electricity is generated, distributed, and transmitted across the world. And so, you know, you get used to just flipping on and off a light switch and it's, and it's power. And you get, you know, you get really accustomed to that without really thinking about all the different things that have to come into play from bringing that energy resource, converting it into electricity, upgrading, you know, uh, or distributing it throughout an entire network and bringing it to your house so that you can turn on a light bulb on demand. Um, a lot of things need to go into play there. And the reality is, is that uh, for the last, you know, probably the, the majority of the time that Bitcoin mining has been around, uh, Bitcoin miners have not wanted any public attention. They've wanted to stay under the radar. They wanted to not be noticed. And so the people who, you know, wanted to put out a narrative there and wanted to put out uh, an idea about what Bitcoin mining is or, or, or wasn't, you know, they had free reign. Uh, because none of the Bitcoin miners were actually standing up and, and telling their story. And I think with the, uh, you know, kind of institutionalization of Bitcoin mining through a lot of these public mining companies, you know, we realized that there's an advantage to being out there in public and there's an advantage to telling your story. Um, and, you know, we're not going to be hiding under the table anymore. We're out there, we're engaging, uh, we're speaking with with journalists, we're speaking with academics, we're speaking with policymakers and their staff, and we're speaking with regulators. And we're focusing a lot on the educational efforts here because uh, the reality is, is that the, the vast majority of information that's been printed on Bitcoin mining, especially on the environmental impact of it, it's just, it's just flat out wrong. Um, some of it is just flat out fraudulent. And nobody has, has really done any effort to to combat that other some some Bitcoin mining personalities and some Bitcoin miners. Um, you know, now that we kind of have this more public face um, and we realize the value of of what we're doing and we realize the value of our story, uh, I think we've got a really good case to show here. I think we're going to be successful in the long run in communicating that to the public and communicating that to investors and regulators and policymakers and everybody else. Um, but it, it takes time, you know, to overcome years of, of misinformation and, uh, you know, shaping people's, warping people's views on the subject. Um, you know, the reality is, is that and I, I've been saying this for four years, that Bitcoin mining is the only natural economic incentive to reduce your emission and reduce electricity waste in the world, bar none. Um, without a government subsidy, there is no incentive to do these things other than Bitcoin mining. And so if you want to ban Bitcoin mining in order to reduce emissions, you're removing one of the most powerful tools that we have in our tool chest to reduce emission, that natural economic incentive that empowers 
individuals and corporations, you know, to, to monetize that waste and reduce it. Yeah, and, and I agree with you 100%, and that's very well said. Um, but, you know, on the flip side, I, one thing that does kind of worry me is that, you know, you, you alluded to earlier about how many Bitcoin miners are kind of going public. Um, and I know that I've, I've heard a couple, I'm not going to name the names or name the companies or anything like that, get onto stages and kind of say, well, you know, we are a public company, so we have to, you know, go by these laws and kind of go by some of these regulations. And so essentially it seems like they're almost kind of bending the knee uh, to some of these ESG policies and kind of just, you know, taking it for what it is. Uh, do you think that there's going to be, I guess, you know, a little bit more of that or are Bitcoin mining companies kind of coming together and saying like, Hey, like, you know, we can get multiple, uh, you know, whether it's C-suite execs from various companies all in the same room talking with these policymakers, is there more like a, I guess, a collaborative effort to kind of help, uh, you know, shrink that knowledge gap? Yeah, uh, everybody across this industry, you know, is, is starting to stand up and speak up uh, and speak out because there's, there's a lot of good stories here and it needs to be communicated to the public. Um, you know, the ESG thing is, is something that seems like it was forced upon the industry. It's not something that this industry uh, asked for. It's something that was was pushed on onto people through the news. Um, but, you know, it's not something that's necessarily uh, not aligned with our interest, right? Um, being good for the environment and being good by reducing electrical waste and being good by monetizing, you know, these kind of recyclable inputs like that only reduces our cost and increases our profitability, right? So as you look for uh, the future and what's going to happen with Bitcoin mining, you know, we're the only industry in the world that has a halving event, a natural incentive that kicks in every four years, which is going to cut that, you know, underlying block reward in half. So you have to think, you know, on that cost side, because, you know, we can't control the revenue, but we do know every four years that Bitcoin revenue is going to go down in half. And so how do you position yourself in the long term? You know, eventually you're going to be having to be using uh, sources of energy that really have no other demand. And it's only by using those sources of energy that have no other demand and therefore no other value that Bitcoin mining is going to be sustainably profitable, you know, in any situation. Right. Um, and I think that's that's a natural economic incentive that is is driving Bitcoin miners. So. You see that playing out. It's like companies like BitFarms are doing that. Companies like uh, Riot are doing uh, that with the energy curtailment and the trading. You have CleanSpark who's doing it with Flare Gas and Crusoe doing it with Flare Gas. Um, there's got companies that are doing it now with the methane uh, emissions capture on landfills and converting it into Bitcoin mining. Like these kind of edge scenarios is where Bitcoin mining is is the most applicable, right? You know, if there's a natural uh, a normal distribution curve for energy costs and energy profitability. Really, Bitcoin mining sits there on those two tail ends, right? It doesn't make sense for 75% of the power that's generated across the, the planet. It just It's not going to be profitable. But on these weird end fringe scenarios where Bitcoin mining is helping to solve market inefficiencies, this is where Bitcoin mining becomes really, really cool and really, really sustainably profitable. Um, and that's We've got that natural incentive through the having to pursue those low cost sources of electricity, uh, which 
are going to be renewable and which are going to be otherwise wasted um, in order to be profit maximizing. Yeah, and there's uh, definitely been been a lot of that, and it seems like you know Bitcoin miners obviously are, are getting smarter and kind of uh, I guess selling that and, and utilizing that energy that's just kind of you know there. But there's also certain points in time. I know you know Riot and and some others that have uh, farms in Texas. It was very you know it was a big story that during this past summer, it was with extreme heat they had to turn off their miners in order to. Um, you know, anticipate all the AC usage and, and everything like that. Do you kind of see that as, you know, maybe a potential trend of like, you know, whether you're up in, in Canada where you guys are located or, um, you know, some of these farms in some of the warmer climates, just kind of adjusting how much uh, power they're utilizing during certain seasons to kind of help anticipate with, you know, uh, extra power use? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, Bitcoin is a really, really disruptive technology for electricity. It's probably the most disruptive technology that's happened to the energy industry since electricity was invented. Um, you know, what people don't understand with electricity, it's, it's one of those, probably the only industry where the optimal, uh, the optimal point is where supply exceeds demand. Uh, you know, in any other industry, you want that supply to be just equally in the demand to be profit maximizing. But if you do that, in the electricity space, you are going to have roving blackouts. Um, you always have to have excess supply relative to the demand. And there's been an amount of energy or amount of electricity that's generated and, and put on the lines that can never be consumed because you have to have that extra buffer there. And it's a problem that the electricity industry never really thought was, was solvable. Um, you also then have to take into consideration that on-demand aspect that I was talking about earlier with just like turning on or off the light switch whenever you want to. You know, the power companies have to have that buffer in anticipation of not just you turning on or off that light switch, but millions of people turning on and off their light switches, you know, simultaneously in random patterns and orders and times, right, to different effects. Um, that gap, that, that distance between the supply and demand um, has always just been seen as as a waste. And Bitcoin mining, I think, is going to come in there and help to monetize that gap and monetize that that load balancing aspect of things. And by doing so, this is what I'm talking about with, you know, the normal distribution curve too, is right. This is a fringe application within electricity that starts making a lot of sense, right? For the 98% of that load that might be generated on that grid, it's not might not make any sense at all. You could have a, you know, a generation uh, cost where it's 20 cents and you're selling it to the public at 30 cents, but it still might make sense to have some Bitcoin mining on that grid and on that, uh, that load to handle these kind of weird fringe cases at the end and be that buyer of last resort that has never existed. Um, and there's no other industry on the planet that can be a buyer of last resort for electricity. It just doesn't work with any other manufacturing or any other business model. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's that's very well said and very well put. And so uh, let's let's get to some of the farms that you guys have. I know you guys are primarily based in Canada, but you have farms kind of all over the place. And I want to talk about your, I guess, uh, Bitfarms experience in using hydroelectric, uh, because I think that's, you know, very interesting. And a lot of these places are just kind of looking for more, um, I guess, at least in the United States, more of this just off straight off the grid. Um you know, electricity that they're using. So 
how has the experience been, you know, using hydroelectric power and, you know, what were I, some, I guess, potential, you know, roadblocks that you guys faced in the initial uh, kind of an, obtaining that power? Yeah. Um, you know, the uh, province of, of Quebec, where we were founded and where the majority of our operations and hash rate is, is just loaded with hydropower. And these are, you know, big hydroelectric dams that were constructed uh, throughout the 20th century in order to power heavy industry. Things like iron ore mining, aluminum smelting, timber mills and paper mills, and um, this kind of heavy industry, which has honestly mostly disappeared. Um, there is still a lot of aluminum smelting and, and iron ore mining, um, but a lot of the other heavy industry players have left, been outsourced to third world countries, uh, have you know a new power or new production plant which has new technology and it's more cost effective in another location. And the reality is, is that when that industrial demand leaves, no other new industrial demand came in. And so you have a big gap between the infrastructure that was built to power all this heavy industry and the heavy industry load demands that exist today. And so in, in Quebec, we have seven different facilities. Six of those seven are facilities that um, we've renovated from a former industrial site. Uh, this was a site that used to be a Quebec manufacturer of something. Uh, notably, one was a hockey stick factory, which, you know, there's besides maple syrup and maybe crude oil, there could be no other more iconic, you know, Canadian product than a hockey stick, but that got outsourced to China. And so all this infrastructure that was built to power all this industry that's left is now sitting there underutilized. And um, that's a really cost effective source of growth. Um, so we, we've tapped into that in these really kind of small areas. It allows us to uh, move into different townships and take advantage of the old uh, infrastructure that was already built, paid for, amateurized over decades, right? And just allow us to, to bring it back to life and remonetize it. And the reality is, especially in, in places like Quebec, they have such a huge surplus of, of generation relative to distribution, transmission, and, and even market demand that uh, we're really only utilizing excess hydroelectric production, um, even beyond what is, is sitting there on the lines. Um, Hydro-Quebec has put out in their report that they spill out about 40 terawatt hours of energy every year. And by spilling, that just means um, they have all the infrastructure there in terms of running the water through the dam to generate electricity, but they don't have an ability to sell that power to a market, right? And so instead of generating that electricity, using the water that's behind the dam, they actually spill it over the dam uh, in order to just uh, avoid generating too much electricity relative to you know, what the market needs. And so if you translate 40 terawatt hours, that comes out to four and a half gigawatts of power on a, a consistent basis. And then you look at what the entire industry for Bitcoin mining consumes and everybody's like, oh, it consumes as much as Argentina or whatever. It's like, well, it's, it's about 10 gigawatts. And so just look at the power that just one province in Quebec alone is, is wasting. They're wasting 45% of the power that it would take to run the entire Bitcoin network, all on hydroelectricity, all on infrastructure that's built out, paid for, and just sitting there not being properly utilized. Um, and so there's, there's tremendous opportunities in situations and in, in markets where they have this kind of gap. And, and that's the same thing that we found in, in Washington state, it's the same thing that we found in Paraguay as well, uh, which has led us to uh, expand into those, those two other regions. Um, 
that excess hydroelectric capacity is, is very important to us for a lot of strategic reasons. You know, sure, there's the, the green aspect of how green it is, but there's also the long-term sustainable economics behind it. And, you know, if you're sitting there and uh, hydroelectricity is, is not a resource that's easily transmitted, you know, the water's going to flow. You can't barrel up bottles, you know, barrel up water and bring it somewhere else and open it up and put it into another plant. You know, it, it, it goes on the lines or it doesn't. Um, so Bitcoin mining, if, if you're going to those hydroelectric resources, you are tapping into a market where the relative supply to demand is just so huge, it really shields you on higher prices rolling forward. Now, I see that you mentioned all of your plants except for Argentina. And uh, I kind of want to get into that plant because it, it seems like, uh, you know, that, that that you guys are using a little bit of a different energy source. And, uh, you know, what was the, I guess, reasoning for going to Argentina? Was it more so because uh, some of the co-founders have roots down there? Um, and what benefits have you found from expanding, I guess, you know, outside of North America and moving more towards South America? Yeah, well, I, I didn't mention Argentina because it's our it's our only site that isn't powered by hydro. And the question was about hydro. Um, but, you know, hydro or sorry, Argentina also fits into our strategy here of reducing our average cost of power and having a strong control on our costs. Um, and so the situation in Argentina is uh, we're behind the meter at a power plant. Um, you know, this is a, a power peaker plant, which the vast, vast majority of the year, there's there's just no demand for its, its production. Um, and so it's sitting there on the line um, being utilized maybe a few hundred hours a year. Uh, you know, relative to all the hours in a year, uh, we're talking about a couple percentage points. And, you know, that enables us to, in a similar way to having this, this underutilized hydroelectric infrastructure resource. Now we have an underutilized natural gas electric resource that we can tap into for those same lower cost economics. And so, you know, we have such a strong discipline there with controlling our costs, um, you know, and we're willing to go to to different markets. I think it's part of Bitcoin's ethos to to be decentralized. And there's more than one way of being decentralized. And there's, um, you know, from our company, we have decentralization even within our, our regions that we operate in. We don't have too many, you know, eggs in one basket. We don't have one facility that everything goes into. Even in Quebec, we have seven different facilities in one town, we may have three different sites, right? Um, so we have physical uh, diversification in smaller areas, and we've got the wider diversification across international markets. And that gives us a, some risk reduction in terms of policy, um, you know, environmental effects, uh, economic impacts, and everything else. So if something bad happens in that one area, you know, not all of our sites are affected, and we still have profitable sources of revenue. Um, and then the other way that, you know, we offer decentralization is really through our, our public shares, uh, which is a new way to think about decentralization. But, you know, it's very easy for, uh, you know, somebody to plug in, in a miner, but it's also very easy for somebody to buy shares. And if you're buying shares of a company that has, you know, a certain amount of exahash, there's a ratio that you can do there on a share per exahash basis. And so similar to uh, or a share per terahash basis. So similar to buying 100 terahash worth of Bitcoin mining as a physical miner, you can buy 100 terahash worth of Bitcoin mining through a public miner. And you can kind of have that diversification of the ownership of that hash rate through our public shares. So we think about it in a couple of different ways. The geographic aspect is, is definitely one of them. 
uh, we want to be exposed to multiple different environments, um, which is going to give us greater access to new energy opportunities and uh, shield us from, uh, you know, disruptive political, environmental, or economic events. Yeah, and, uh, you know, that's, that's definitely interesting and a good point. And I think it all kind of revolves around the Bitcoin ethos, which, you know, I, I absolutely love as well. So, um, but I, I did notice that there's more of a deployment to of older ASICs to the South American facilities. Is there, I guess, maybe a, you know, a worry of maybe some more potential geopolitical risk as it's your first you know, site down there? Or is there, you know, another reasoning because you guys ha are getting such cheap energy down there and like, you know, specifically your Argentina facility? So um, our Argentina facility is actually all brand new M30Ss. Uh, so it's it's some of the, you know, the best equipment we have. Um, in the Paraguay site though, we did deploy some of the older equipment. And uh, the reasoning for that was, was pretty simple, really. Um, you know, we had uh, a number, a couple thousand Bitcoin miners in a Silicon T3s that we're still good performers, uh, you know, still operate well, generate good profit and cash flow, but uh, they weren't really worth much on the secondhand market. And so when we looked at the, the Paraguay opportunity, we said, hey, here's our chance to expand into a new market that we've never been in, in before. Um, how do we want to do that? And one of the ways that we wanted to do that was just in the lowest capital uh, cost possible. And so by taking, you know, miners that we've been running in Quebec for almost three years, um, they've paid themselves off numerous times over and don't have a further capital cost associated with them. And we can't get a very good price for them on the retail market. How about we send them down to a lower cost jurisdiction, right? Reduce the overall cost of, of setting up in a new country and extend the useful lifespan of these machines and these cash flows. And so we were able to expand in Paraguay using those uh, used miners for a fraction of the cost uh, for expanding in Paraguay with brand new miners. And that gave us access to a completely new market uh, for power down there at a fraction of the price to start. Gotcha. And that makes a lot of sense. Um, and then one last question on, on bit farms, and then we'll get into, I guess, um, you know, maybe a little bit of the reasoning why to invest into, uh, you know, miners instead of maybe the underlying asset. But I did see that you guys recently paid off some debt. Um, so why pay off the debt now kind of in this like prolonged bear market um, and, you know, what was the debt secured by anything? And, uh, you know, I guess the optimal capital structure that you guys have for the long run. Yeah. So, you know, we have a strong focus, like I said, on cost. And we also have a strong focus on, on balance sheet improvement. And that's part of a way that you help to de-risk the company and, and make sure that we're strengthened um, and ready and able and, you know, to not only survive, but to, th to thrive. Um, as the spare market ends and, and the bull market begins to rally. And so uh, we have a, a wide variety of, of financings that we do. Uh, we've done a number of minor financings where the, you know, it's just a minor equipment loan. Uh, the only collateral is the minor. There's no real corporate guarantees or anything associated with that. Um, that's been a big chunk of our, of our capital. Uh, we also have, uh, we had a Bitcoin back loan, which we still have with, with Galaxy. And that was a, a decent amount of our capital. And then we also have uh, like the ATM program and the private placements that we've done on the equity side. And so we're trying to balance, you know, debt, uh, dilution uh, and everything else by tapping into these various different uh, financing vehicles to help us raise cost effective capital, uh, you know, for the company. 
And looking at the ones in our press release that we just had a couple of weeks ago, the debt that we paid off, uh, that was some minor financing. It was our first minor financing actually that we did back in uh, 2020. And so, you know, as an example of how productive those facilities were, uh, we signed agreements for, I believe it was M31Ss and M31S pluses, a total of four agreements for 7,000 uh, of these miners. Uh, the prices was in the, the teens per terahash. I think we were paying back then, it was somewhere around 14 to $16 a terahash for this equipment. And it came financed at 105% uh, loan to value, right? So not only did the companies pay for the entire cost of the miners, but they also paid for our upfront duties, which were tax recoverable, uh, so that we had zero capital outlay at the beginning to grow that hash rate, right? Um, and so, you know, you look at how do you grow your, your hash rate with, with your capital on hand, those minor financings were a great source of that. And um, they paid off handsomely. Uh, you know, as soon as the market started going up, the underlying value of that collateral is worth a lot more than we paid for it. Um, the profitability of those miners increased. So we were making way more in terms of the, uh, the daily mining revenue, even when you add the P&I payments on top of, uh, you know, the cost to operate the equipment. And so those ones were just two-year agreements and, and they just came to a, a close. Um, and so it's just an example of, uh, you know, all the different strategies that we've taken at BitFarms in order to, to grow our company in, in ways that, you know, are, are trying to be cost effective with a strong focus on return on investment. And uh, we've got uh, another couple of those minor financing agreements, which are scheduled to be paid off, you know, shortly. I think there's one either this month or next month, and then there's one in January. And, you know, we've, we spread these out. So we're going to continue to reduce the debt on our balance sheet just through the natural payback of these schedules, uh, you know, that we started two years ago, effectively. Um, and beyond that, you know, that's, that's just going to help us be better positioned going into next year, less debt on the balance sheet, you know, less payments to be made. Uh, that's just more cash for, for the company. Yeah, it sounds like you guys are, uh, you know, positioning everything well. And it, it seems like, you know, you're, you're doing everything uh, you need to be doing to, to continue to grow BitForms. And uh, yeah, I mean, this conversation has been amazing. And uh, I've definitely learned a lot on, on how you guys look at everything. But, um, you know, I feel like every time Bitcoin mining companies come up and the, the stock comes up, there's always that that one question as to, you know, why invest in a Bitcoin mining company and purchase a stock opposed to the underlying asset. I've heard you kind of go on this a, a few other times, but I'd love to hear hear it again as to why you think, you know, investing in some of these companies is, you know, uh, a good outlook. Yeah, I mean, there's a very specific function that, that we fill as, as public mining companies, and, and we provide exposure to Bitcoin uh, through the public equity space. So if you are, you know, an investor that doesn't have comfortability with managing your own private keys and your own hardware wallets, and maybe you don't even have, uh, you know, the internal corporate approvals to invest under in the underlying asset, you know, that leaves you to look for other derivatives of it. And it's, it's very tricky, even in the United States right now, to have a true proxy to Bitcoin on NASDAQ, right, or, or any of the other public markets. Um, in Canada, they had a little bit more success. We have actual Bitcoin ETFs in, in Canada. Um, but in the United States, the, the closest thing still is, is Grayscale Trust. And 
Uh, it's not a true ETF. There's liquidity and redemption issues and everything else which separate it from being an ETF. And so Bitcoin miners are a way to uh, still have that exposure, but be compliant with the current regulations that exist and are preventing other true proxies. And so you can get exposure to Bitcoin through your traditional you know, tools, through traditional platforms and portfolios without achieving or without having to go seek, you know, different specified corporate approvals to set up exchanges and private keys and have the audit approval and all of that stuff. Um, you can get exposure directly through the Bitcoin miners themselves. And uh, the miners all generally function as leverage plays to Bitcoin. And so, you know, as the market well, was really ramping up last year, uh, I believe every public miner outperformed the underlying Bitcoin price, right? So if you're a believer in the Bitcoin price going up, the public miners are a great way to have exposure to it because you don't have the concerns that a lot of companies may have when it comes to investing in the underlying asset, just because they don't understand the technology, they don't have the procedures in place. Um, you know, but for a leverage play, you know, leverage works in both ways. And uh, the reality is, is that this year, in the same way that every Bitcoin miner outperformed Bitcoin, uh, this year as Bitcoin is pulled back, every Bitcoin miner has uh, outperformed Bitcoin to the downside, right? And so every Bitcoin miner is down more than Bitcoin is down. And that is just the function of, of that leveraged exposure. So you know, we provide that opportunity for investors if they think Bitcoin mining is a good time, uh, if it's a good time to invest in Bitcoin, investing in the Bitcoin miners is, is a great way to get that exposure. And, you know, as as with everything, you know, hopefully you are buying low and selling high. Um, you know, the miners right now are pulled back in some cases well over 90%. And so if you, if you weren't comfortable with the valuations last year, you know, you might start looking at the valuations now when you're paying you know, 10 cents on the dollar, or 8 cents on the dollar to their peaks from last year, because if, if Bitcoin price is turning around, you know, this is a relative discount that you can get buying Bitcoin right now, that's going to outperform Bitcoin on the way up. So you can buy more of it now, and it's going to have a higher uh, relative return when markets improve. And so that's, that's the function that we serve here in terms of, of investors and, and markets. Um, but, you know, there's, there's, there's risk and uh, that everybody needs to take into consideration. And there's just a lot of unknowns here uh, from most investors in terms of trying to understand which Bitcoin miner they want to back. And I think I think that is a, a hurdle that I think most investors still are struggling with is, is just how do you choose the right one uh, to go about? And I, I'd say, you know, look at operational records. I'd say, look at what they're saying, look at what they're doing look at what they're actually producing today and value them on how the company performs month over month instead of what they might be able to do in two years time. Gotcha. So Ben, thank you so much for your time. I, I really appreciate it. Why don't you tell everybody where they can find you and what you, all you got going on? Yeah. Uh, I mean, only one place that you can find me is on Twitter at, at hash override. Um, and you can also follow a bit farms at um, BitFarms underscore IO on Twitter as well. You can go to our website, bitfarms.com. Um, and I think we also have now uh, an Instagram and a Facebook, but uh, I don't I don't use those channels, so I'm not entirely sure. I just go to our website and our Twitter. There we go. Yeah, follow them on Twitter. Thanks so much, Ben. Have a good one. Yeah, thank you, Brandon. Great having you.